2: If there's one thing I've gotten comfortable with over the last few seasons of this show, it's this. I know that every single episode we do is probably going to piss people off. At the very least, it's going to make someone uncomfortable, emotional, and upset. That's just the nature of discussing books. Books are deeply, deeply personal. and We have emotions attached to them that no other person on earth can comprehend. Because every story we find, we interact with in unique emotional states. I come to this novel in a capacity that I discuss in the episode, but also in a way I share with all of you. After two years of pandemic. So, we're going to talk about sick kids dying. Greetings, Attic Wives, and welcome to our season four premiere of Fuckboys of Literature. I'm your host, Emily Edwards. You've stuck with me through an awful lot, and for that, I thank you. This season is going to be a bit loopy, a bit different. Many of you who follow me on social media know that I'm working on my first book series at the moment, so time is a little bit tighter than it used to be books probably will stop being 400 pages of Victorian sadness for a little while and air more on being 200 pages of millennial sadness instead. It's going to be a journey, and I can't thank you enough for going on it with me. And without much further ado, let's discuss some death. All right, everyone. With me today on our first episode of this season is a voice you will recognize from many seasons past. Malavika, proceed. How the hell are you?
1: I am doing pretty well, and I am so pumped for this episode. This okay. has been a long time coming. Um, yeah. So this book, I'm
2: so happy we're t- we're tackling it, and I'm so happy I'm tackling it with you because you're ten years younger than me. So. I am. <laughs> your history with this book is way different from my history with this book.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I read this when it came out and I was of the age of the characters at that time.
2: Which is perfect. Which is perfect. It's the right way to read this, not as a jaded, angry 36-year-old woman who runs a book podcast about shitty people in literature for a living because... (laughs) I want to be fair to John Green because he is a very good writer. Mm -hmm. I will give him that.
1: This book is a lot to handle. It's a lot. And it it was weird because like I started reading the book and I had very much my older, older self, like my writer hat on. And I'm like, so many things in the construction of this book just make no sense. Um, And there and obviously you can tell a lot more now about when a story is manipulating you or when certain tactics are put into place and you get that more now that you didn't before but then i started i kept going and i'm like i'm not the audience for this book right now i'm i'm 26 i i am no longer in the ya demographic but i did remember what i loved about it at 17 and i still saw that in this book
2: absolutely like even though i don't have a history with it i was really old when this came out. I was, I was your age that you are now when this came out. So like, I missed every single ripple of pop culture, like wave that this made. Um, and, and, you know, I have a different relationship to cancer now. Uh, my dad died of liver cancer four-ish, five-ish years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. and you work in oncology. So I'm sure you were like,
1: absolutely not John Green. This is not correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's so funny too because he sets this book in Indianapolis, which is where my company is actually based out of. And I was like, and I'm like, but you're referencing different names of hospitals. That's another thing. I suppose he didn't want to use any actual names of hospitals.
2: Here. Right. There's a liability thing there that
1: makes right. sense. Right. I think medically speaking, the thing that stood out to me the most is where. Augustus is like, yeah, then I walked in for a PET scan. And I'm like, you can't walk into a PET scan. Those are scheduled weeks in advance. Those are so (laughs) expensive. Like, those are, you can't just walk in and be like, it's like getting a blood drop. Like, that's not how it works. And I'm like, who really cares? Yeah, yeah. There are certainly like
2: little hiccupy things where I'm just like, for narrative, like exposition and convenience, these things happened. Like- Uh, you know uh it, hazel just kind of being like i had fluid drawn from my lungs and then 2 days later i was walking around and i'm like it is not that fast that is an invasive terrifying procedure
1: yeah absolutely i but it, it you can we can nitpick at these things and obviously the there are some things that john green gets really right i mean i'm saying this as someone who has not had cancer myself right. but there are some things he really gets right about teenagers and how teenagers think and how teenagers process grief. And that that emotional core, that's still there. Absolutely. I think that's really important because it's funny because I started
2: going through my highlights because I read this on a Kindle like just before we started talking. And so many of the things that I've highlighted are things that I thought were funny at first. And then looking back at them out of context, they are mean. They are the meanest things I've read Possibly in a YA novel ever. And I'm like, that makes total sense because when you are a teenager, you think you're being witty and you think you're being acerbic, but these kids are depressed. How can you not be? How can you not be struggling with these overwhelming feelings? Mm -hmm. And you can't, you don't have the finesse of being an adult and knowing the difference between feeling pain and causing pain. And that I thought was perfect.
1: And that's actually a really good point because I'm so I actually am talking about this now on the heels of a YA writing conference. I recently attended a workshop. I'm writing a YA book right now. And the the just how YA has changed is remarkable in so many ways. We're hearing from so many new voices that haven't been really heard before. But one of the things that I've also noticed about YA is there's a, a tendency almost to make your characters as unproblematic as possible. Yeah, And you still don't want to make a Mary Sue's, but they they don't they don't really do or say anything hurtful. And one thing I'll give these characters, even though I I think there are definitely problems with how they're created, they they are mean to each other. Mm-hmm. They are realistic in that sense, and they are problematic at times. Yeah. Yeah. They are, and that's normal.
2: I think Hazel has a really interesting relationship to her parents and that's yeah. like one place where I can start as an adult with, you know, I have friends who have teenage kids, you know, they they started a little bit younger than the rest of us and I have friends who have kids who are 18, 19 years old and I can fathom what it would be like to have a kid, I don't like kids, I don't want them, but I can fathom what it would be like to be like staring at your child who is facing the worst thing that a human being can face, and then have them also treat you like a normal teenager treats their parents, which is like, I hate you, mom. And you're just like, how do I handle this? Because I want to mm-hmm. like scream at my kid, but they've also got cancer. and. Yeah. That relationship between Hazel and her parents specifically, less so much Augustus and his parents, um, I thought was just really, really brilliant because Hazel has a natural, natural relationship to her parents.
1: Absolutely. And I think one of the things, too, that made Hazel's sort of emotional journey so real is that one of her biggest concerns is not her own mortality. I mean, obviously she wants to live, but she's accepted her condition. Yeah. The thing that keeps her up at night is wondering what her parents will do without her. Yeah. And that comes down to ba- that whole book that she's obsessed with, an imperial inflection. She she doesn't know, want to know what happened to Anna. She has come to terms with that. She wants to know what happened to the hamster, what happened to Anna's mom and the Dutch tulip guy. She wants to know how everyone else's stories will go on. And it's a very mature way of processing things. I mean, Hazel is a mature teenage character. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's been through a lot, but couple that with, you know, the way she lashes out at her parents, she still is very much a teen. Yeah. Like
2: uh, there are ways that John Green, I I, I was thinking this and whoever is a John Green fan who is listening to this is probably not going to write, like me phrasing it this way, but John Green is a better writer then he lets himself be in this book Mm -hmm. because there's so many brilliant jokes. There's so many different ways that he creates really adult, just fantastic, uh, uh, insightful characters that also have this nuance of being shitty kids. Mm -hmm. Um, He, he does it really, really well. And then I feel like this book kind of just gets glommed up in the cancer of it all. And it's, Mm -hmm. and it ruins it. It ruins it a little bit for me.
1: Yeah, I, I can see that. To me, what was kind of glomming it up, so to speak, was just the choice to put some of the monologues into dialogue. You know, there, there are these long monologues in this book that read very deep when you're a teen, you know, mm-hmm. the, the oblivion stuff and yeah. all of that. And it's like, reading that as spoken dialogue between two people, I'm like, this is amateur hour. Yeah, I would believe it so much more if this is just what they were thinking and if it was processed as thoughts and not as dialogue. Exactly. And- as a writer, someone aspiring to be a writer, that just stood out at me as just, you know, you don't have to put that all in dialogue for teens to understand it.
2: Yeah. It could have been a journal entry. It could have been like something she does like anonymously on social media or like when I was a teenager, I had live journal and stuff like that where you- You could have
1: just thought it. You know, exactly. And think- she sits on her swing set and thinks about it. I mm-hmm. mean, that I feel like would make so much more sense. And yeah. there's a lot of introspection in this book. But then sometimes it's like, let me give you a to be or not to be here in the middle of the book. And I'm like, what?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And like, Eve, every teenager does know that when they're doing their best sardonic Oscar Wilde bullshit to every adult in their life and in, and the flexing that they do in front of other kids, mm-hmm. like, you know, in the end, you're not as smart as you make yourself out to be because you're doing it because yeah. you're scared shitless. Mm-hmm. and the fact that some of these kids never actually get called out on being sardonic oscar Wilde wannabes like by other people like it's a little bit it's a little bit unrealistic like there's a ribbing culture amongst teenagers of just being like oh this one's being a prick like let's knock back down to size and it doesn't really happen all that much yeah
1: yeah i think it's sort of this unspoken hierarchy of like this person is sicker than me. I don't want to pick on them, but then they all kind of pick on each other. And I mean, I accept it within the group of them. You have Isaac Gus and Hazel and them constantly kind of going at each other. I'd accept that if there seemed to be a bit more back and forth, but it just seemed at any given point, one was the butt of the jokes and the others weren't. I don't know. Right. Right.
0: Hey everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas city, Chicago,
2: this book is such an interesting thing to have experienced as an older person. Um, like I really can't get over like white, poor, the, the the tragedy of it all, you know, comes from, I, I referenced this author to you in, in texts that we were mm-hmm. uh, exchanging before recording of the tragedy of like the Lurleen McDaniel of it all. And if you are over 30, you will know who this writer is. If you are under 30, you will probably not. Um, every she she released dozens and dozens and dozens of oh my god this kid has cancer novels throughout like the 70s 80s and early 90s and every single one just about has the same plot the kid with cancer always dies, and but in her book, the books there are have a tendency to be a little bit more like angelic, sort of like mm-hmm. mom and dad love them, uh, you know, like they want to live. Even though in *The Fault in Our Stars*, I feel kind of like they're ambivalent about living, which I feel might be more accurate to the the depression of living with a terminal disease.
1: Well, Hazel is, which I think is really interesting how the two of them approach living. Gus has the very, like, I thought the aspect of his character that felt the most real to me was just the 17-year-old boy-ness of it, where mm-hmm. it's like he wants to leave a legacy and he still has this idea and he thinks he's recovered for so much of this book. Right. So he thinks he's going to go on and do great things. and And then him grappling with his own deterioration, that broke my heart. So much because you're seeing this vibrant character slowly being cut down, not only by his illness, but him just losing hope. And that was the saddest thing for me. Yeah. I
2: think he juxtaposed against Isaac, who Mm -hmm. is his best friend, who's also at the support group. He's got eye cancer, which I didn't really know was a thing, though logically it has to be. He loses both of his eyes and he loses his eyesight. And, and, at some point, Gus runs into his hospital room after he's lost his second eye. Isaac is blind. His girlfriend's just broken up with him. It's like tragedy punk, 17-year-old tragedy. And mm-hmm. Gus basically screams, like, you have your whole life ahead of you. And that is more sincere than I think any 17-year-old boy has ever been in his life. Mm-hmm. But it's also a really beautiful characterization of Gus yeah. that, like, broke my heart.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's absolutely true. Like they, and, and Hazel, I think Hazel's perspective on living is the most realistic Mm -hmm. because she has been dying for years now. She's been dying longer than any of them have. And I, I love the scene in the support group where they have that one girl who has been recovered for so long. And she's like, I just really admire Hazel's strength you know, she inspires me, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, I'll take your remission. You can have my strength. Yeah. And I was like, that's cold, but also like, yeah, that's the realistic thought. And, I mean, how many times have you heard in, in illness or it's like don't compliment someone for being brave if you're disabled? I mean, that's just their life. Exactly, exactly. I think
2: this book really does have insightful moments of calling out trauma porn. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's a huge aspect of now, even uh, for the fact that for the last two years we've been living through an epidemic, which makes mm-hmm. this book feel, you know, entirely different. We right. all have friends or loved ones who are battling long COVID, and that's a that's an entirely different way and lens of looking through this book and that that scene i was like how else could hazel have responded She is sitting there she knows she's terminal another kid has just been added to the list of kids who have died and mm-hmm. she's just like what the fuck are you still doing here like how dare you fetishize sickness when mm-hmm. all the rest of us would give anything to be in your position and I was like thank god she got mean I was like
0: yeah.
1: good for you <laughs> yeah I I liked that about her I, I I just I don't know that that part felt very real and I mean there are parts of this book that don't feel so real but and and it's weird thinking about when it skewers trauma porn when you can even argue that some parts of it is trauma porn. oh most of but, it is yeah <laughs> right but I I I find it funny because I haven't read the, what'd you say her name was? Lorreen McDaniel. Lorraine McDaniel. Lorraine McDaniel. Yeah. Do her books have like a religious thing to them? All of them.
2: Yeah. yeah. Which I was surprised to see in this novel. I had no idea that there was such a strong thumb of Jesus like underneath yeah. this. Like
1: I was really shocked. I'm, I'm not surprised by that because even though the characters themselves aren't overtly religious, Our medical system in the United States is inherently religious. That's a
2: really Um, good point.
1: All of the hospitals are religiously affiliated pretty much in one way or another. I work for a religious hospital and all of them sort of have that undercurrent of faith to them even if you aren't explicitly participating. So like there's almost no culture of sickness in America without religion.
2: That's a really good point. You know, like uh, my entire family is atheist. And when my dad was dying, you know, we were at Yale New Haven, which is not a religiously affiliated hospital. And even they could not grasp that my dad like wasn't like champing at the bit to see a priest or something like that. Mm -hmm. And they were like, what? They had no idea what to do. They kept asking. And we were like, we're actually more insulted that you keep asking asking than the fact that you asked once. Like, it's fine for you to ask once. How the hell would you know? The fact that you, like, really can't believe that my dad doesn't want to talk to a religious person is is really Mm -hmm. mind-boggling for a a group of, like, really annoying atheist adults. Like, why do you keep asking? Right, right. And it was really surprising to me that, like, um, Gus's parents were deeply religious um, you know, they, they say like, oh, we thank God that Hazel is here. Let us pray about things. You know, the, the funeral is taking place mm-hmm. in a church. Um, and, and I was really just genuinely surprised that John Green either like didn't have the narrator kind of like scoff at it or wonder about it. Or, you know, they have an entire mm-hmm. like little come to Jesus chat on a date while like, what do you mm-hmm. think happens after we die? Do you think there's a heaven? And I'm like, You have to be pretty religious to launch those conversations with people.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I mean, I can chalk it up to sickness culture. This is also the Midwest. Like, that's just kind of, as a Midwest native, that's just kind of how it is, even if you're, I'm not Christian. But like, that's just kind of culture that people are in. And I thought Gus's parents were really interesting, especially reading them now in the sense that they're like live, laugh, love characters. Like when they yeah. had those affirmations, I was like, that's before all the live, laugh, j- love jokes came yeah. out. And I'm like, oh man, all <laughs> it was just even funnier now, like picturing Hazel just calmly looking at all of these like, inspirational messages oh, everywhere thinking like what the hell is this <laughs> have you ever seen the tiktok of this gentleman
2: who is a man of color and he goes this is me walking around my white mother's house and it's he literally goes through with his girlfriend who's filming him who is laughing her ass off of like home is where the heart is live <laughs> laugh love it's wine o'clock it's on Everything. Everything. It's in every room. And I was like, I didn't realize until I saw that TikTok that that is definitely like a white lady culture. And then to (laughs) see this in like 2012 YA literature, I was just like, oh my God, they read like a book. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm like, that was a little ahead of its time. Yeah. But yeah, I I found that really funny. I, I I think Gus in relation to his parents is interesting because we don't get to see Gus kind of with his parents alone. Like we, we follow Hazel. Yeah. This isn't a dual perspective novel. So we don't really know Gus's context other than hot boy of Hazel's dreams pretty much. Right. And he was, let me just say as a 17 year old, this is where I have to bring in like my personal thing with this book. As I mentioned. I was never I have never been sick. I am very thankful for that. But the scene where they are in the plane and Gus is asking Hazel to read something and she recites Proofrock, mm-hmm. which when I was 17 was my favorite poem. Same. And the scene where you read she reads Proofrock and then Gus tells her I love you. I uh, I think that was the extent of all I thought romance could ever be. <laughs> when I was 17 years old and pretentious as hell with no friends. I'm like, that's all I want in life. Yep, yep, yep. (laughs) And John Green, you know- Pretentious, bookish people with no friends need love too. Yeah, and thankfully Jad Green wrote that book for me, and I needed that at seventeen.
2: <laughs> and he's a jock too. And is supposed yes. to be. A dick. I'm pretty tall for a lady. I'm like five ten. So she's just you know like the fact that he's like a basketball player and hunky and loves her poetry and is gonna read like this stupid pretentious novel that she's obsessed with and he yeah. <laughs> and i'm just like oh my god he was like plucked out of everybody's like wishes hopes and dreams Everybody for a boyfriend.
1: yeah yeah but at the same time, he still has some of that, like, 17-year-old fuckboy behavior. Like, when he takes her to the movies, like, we're going to watch V for Vendetta right yeah. now. And she's like, she's thinking, like, it was fine. It's a boy movie. Why do boys expect us to like boy movies? We don't expect him to like girl movies. And I'm like, that's such a simple sentence. But I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I have that <laughs> highlighted
2: literally right in front of me. I thought it was one of the best lines in the book. Also, it really is. Uh, oh, God, what is this? I stayed up pretty late that night reading *The Price of Dawn*. Spoiler alert: *The Price of Dawn* is blood, and I'm just like, that's a brilliant joke. It's a
1: great <laughs> joke about this it stupid is. video game novel that he insists on her reading. I just thought that the exchanging of books, like that, that's that's adorable. Like he he gets interested in her book and he wants to get to know her. He's so earnest. He yeah. really is.
2: Yeah, in a way that I think 16-year-old boys, 17-year-old boys don't get credit for. Like, mm-hmm. being around teenage boys is its such an interesting uh, journey of emotion for a grown adult feminist woman, where you watch them be like absolutely disgusting animals. And then they can also just be like the most sincere and adorable creatures on Earth. And as always... If you'd like to hear the remainder of this episode, please head on over to patreon.com fuckboysoflit, that's B-O-I-S, and subscribe for as little as a dollar a month. You'll have access to the rest of this show and dozens of episodes of our previous seasons. That measly 25 cents per episode helps keep this show running, so if we've tickled you even just a little, please consider joining. The link to our Patreon is in the show notes, We'll be back next week with more Fuckboys of Lit. I'm your host, Emily Edwards, and have a good one.